to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, since beginning the season of ordinary time, we have been getting back to the basics of human life, what it means to be and live the life of a human creature. For example, we have discussed our radical dependency upon God as the creator and sustainer of our participatory existence as creatures. This reality led us to the basic fact that we are not our own, but rather owe all that we have and are to God. We have also discussed that the gift of existence comes with the gift of a completely unique, created, and missional identity. Said differently, each human creature has been created on purpose, with a purpose, by God. Last Sunday provided us with the occasion to discuss how, though each unique, each human creature is called to live prophetically, to live so as to point ahead to a future lived in perfect communion with God, wherein lies the human creature's consummation. We have also touched on a related negative aspect to these truths, namely that because we are radically dependent upon God for our existence and because our created identities find their perfection only in communion with God, to reject communion with God and to be separated from God as a consequence leads to our disintegration as human creatures. This Sunday we continue exploring basic truths about human life by being confronted with one of the most difficult realities of human life. Suffering. The reality of pain and suffering has always been one of the greatest hurdles to overcome with respect to being a person of faith. Up and down the centuries, perhaps with even greater frequency than asking the meaning of our existence, human creatures have asked, Why suffering? Why pain? These questions quickly turn in the direction of an argument on behalf of atheism, or if not, outright denial of God's existence, in the direction of deism to a God who has little concern for his creation. So the timeless argument goes, if a loving God exists, he would not allow for so much pain and suffering in the world. Such a contention is as potent as it is simple. It is a question that, in my experience, keep many young people from faith in God. A God of love, a God of goodness, is not reconcilable with pain and suffering in the minds of many. And today, we discover that our God completely agrees. Our first reading comes from chapter 7 of the book of Job, verses 1 to 4 and 6 to 7. Written between the 7th and 5th centuries BC, the book of Job is a testament to humanity's longing for an answer to the question of suffering in the world, and more specifically, the suffering of the innocent. In the passage we hear today, Job laments the toils and struggles we experience as human creatures, together with the shortness of human life. Is not life on earth a drudgery, Job asks, like a slave who longs for the shade, a hireling who waits for wages. So I have been assigned months of futility, and troubled nights have been counted off for me. I am filled with restlessness until the dawn. 
My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. They come to an end without hope. With these words, Job gives voice to so many who suffer in various ways. He could well be describing someone who is facing an illness or the illness of a loved one, someone mourning the loss of a loved one, someone desperately seeking employment to feed their family, someone facing a crisis of identity, wondering why they are here when nothing seems to make sense. Why is life so hard? Why so much suffering? Our reading for today from chapter 7 comes after disaster has befallen Job. In chapter 1, we learn that Job is an exemplary righteous man who God has blessed with a great deal of material wealth as well. Many in that time and place would have believed the two to be correlated, that God blessed Job with a great deal of wealth precisely because Job was righteous. However, the book of Job stands athwart such a theological hypothesis, which is akin to a gospel of prosperity. For within the opening chapter of the book, we learn that God has allowed Job to undergo such suffering. This is the first of six important points we learn concerning the topic of human suffering today. While God does not actively afflict the innocent, he allows suffering to take place. We also learn a second point in short order within the first two chapters of Job. Namely, that suffering is indeed evil. For it is carried out within the book of Job at the instigation of the representative of evil, if you will, Satan. And Job suffers a great deal of evil indeed. Job's vast amounts of livestock are stolen or destroyed. Many of his servants killed, and his ten children have died in a horrible accident. Initially, upon hearing the news, the devastated Job immediately turns to the worship of God, saying, Naked I came forth from my mother's womb, and naked shall I go back there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The suffering continues in chapter 2, where Job is struck with severe boils from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. But Job's suffering doesn't stop there. Instead, those closest to him begin to blame him for what has happened. While we don't know Job's wife's reaction to the loss of wealth and children, we know that when Job is physically afflicted, she's seen and had enough. She says to him, Are you still holding to your innocence? Curse God and die. But Job responds, We accept good things from God. Should we not accept evil? Then three of Job's friends show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, to give him sympathy and comfort. But when Job utters his cries from the heart, reflecting on his own personal suffering and the struggles of human life, as we hear him describing our first reading today, They each in turn say that either he or the members of his family must be to blame for what he is suffering. But Job stands resolute. He has done nothing to merit his suffering. He is innocent. And Job is ultimately vindicated. After several long exchanges between Job and his friends, in chapters 38 to 41, God speaks. And it is here, within the divine monologue, that we learn a third point concerning suffering. And it is perhaps the most difficult to accept, given our desire for an explanation concerning why there is suffering to begin with. Chapter 38 begins by telling us, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Who is this who darkens counsel with words of ignorance? Gird up your loins now like a man. I will question you, and you tell me the answers. 
The divine monologue that follows contains some of the most beautiful and powerful words of Scripture. God questions Job, and importantly, all of us who read these verses down to the present. Where were you when I founded the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its size? Surely you know. Who stretched out the measuring line for it? The rest of the monologue is filled with similar questions. For example, God asks, Have you ever in your lifetime commanded the morning and shown the dawn its place? And can you raise your voice to the clouds for them to cover you with a deluge of waters? Can you send forth the lightnings on their way so that they say to you, Here we are. These and similar questions are meant to humble us as human creatures. We are not God. We are not the Creator. And we do not care for or guide creation in the way that only its Creator can. With respect to the topic of suffering then, the divine monologue drives home the point that no single instance of suffering is fully intelligible from the vantage point of the human creature. Why does a mother suffer a miscarriage? Why does a child contract cancer? Why does someone lose their job, the only way they have to feed their family? Over time, we may begin to see part of the answer as to why we have experienced such sufferings, but only partial answers. Only God, who views all of history at once, knows why he allows any of his human creatures to suffer in any given instance, and how it fits into the overall story of the drama of human history as a whole. It is as if all of history were a great novel, and any given experience of suffering but a word on a single page. When we don't know how the novel reads, there is no way we can make sense out of an instance of suffering. This is the point of the divine monologue in Job. Our perspective as human creatures is too limited to fully comprehend why God allows one to suffer and not another. And this, to be sure, is a difficult and humbling response from the Almighty. But a fourth point emerges from Job's exchange with the Creator. Ask yourself, who is the central figure of the book of Job? The answer is the same as if we ask the question of the entirety of Scripture, God. God is the central actor in the book of Job. It is God who allows this to happen in the first place, and it is God who assures Job that all is under his watchful care in the divine monologue near the end. And importantly, the dialogues between Job and his friends all concern why God has allowed this to happen. In other words, the experience of Job's suffering turns the thoughts of all involved towards God for good or ill. This is the fourth point we learn today. As C.S. Lewis so wonderfully put it in his work, The Problem of Pain, We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is God's megaphone, the instrument he uses to rouse a deaf world. This is one of the central lessons of the book of Job. God calls to us through our pain. And what does he say to us? In each case, the message will be unique to the one suffering, for only God knows how any given experience of pain fits into a human life, as any experience of suffering touches not only the one suffering, but all those close to the one suffering. However, 
All suffering has this message in common. There is something wrong. Here we catch a glimpse at how God speaks to us through ordinary experiences. What is often the first thing we say when we fall ill? Something's wrong. I don't feel well. And we take the appropriate steps to lead to our healing, get some rest, take some medicine, and go to the doctor if necessary. This is precisely the spiritual message of every experience of suffering. In addition to whatever ailment we face, be it physical, mental, or emotional, there is an underlying reality of human life being conveyed to us on a spiritual level. There is something wrong. In this sense, every experience of pain is spiritually prophetic. Every time we experience pain, our instinctive reaction, whether intentionally thought of or impulsively cried out by the body, is rejection of pain. We simply desire not to be in pain. This is the prophetic message of pain, how pain is God's megaphone. It is a reminder that all is not well, that contrary to the message of the world, I'm not okay and you're not okay. It is thus that every experience of pain, if attended to fully, has the potential to draw us close to God, to the one who alone has the power to heal every single ailment the human creature and the human family suffers from. And what of God? Our readings for this weekend unite to tell us that, even more than we, God rejects suffering. This is the fifth and most important point we learn today regarding suffering. Thus, if pain is God's megaphone, prophetically reminding us on a spiritual level that all is not well with us, it is also the megaphone through which God tells us that He desires our healing as well. This is a truth held close throughout the whole of Scripture. Once again, as explored repeatedly over the last several weekends, we see how the orders of creation and salvation operate according to the same logic and dynamics. For no less than asserting that God is creator, Scripture consistently reminds us that God is Savior. The word Savior finds its origin in the Greek soter, which in Latin is translated as salvator, the one who gives and brings in Latin salus. We translate salus as salvation. But the word salus carries the meanings of safety, security, and health. All of these meanings are caught up and drawn together in what we mean by salvation. Normally, when we hear the word salvation used in an ecclesial setting, we think of Jesus saving us from our sins. And this is true, to be sure. But how often, I wonder, do we remember that our salvation from sin is the healing of our most fundamental ailment, the ailment that gives rise to all of the rest? And how often do we remember that ultimately our salvation will mean the cessation of all human suffering in eternity? But this is exactly what scripture promises life will be like at the end of time, when all has been recreated. We find it described this way at the beginning of the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling is with the human race. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will always be with them as their God. He will wipe 
every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death or mourning, wailing or pain, for the old order has passed away. Our God rejects suffering, and in the end, He will assure the cessation of all suffering. Such is one of the central messages of all Scripture. For, while it is only at the end where we are promised eternal redemption from all suffering, from the purview of the end, we can see that this is what God is working towards throughout all of human history. This is precisely what we see in our readings for this weekend. At the end of the book of Job, God saves, restores Job to full health, prosperity, and long life. The final verses of the book read, After this, Job lived a hundred and forty years. And he saw his children, his grandchildren, and even his great-grandchildren. Then Job died, old and full of years. Such is the God the people of Israel learned to love as they lived in covenantal relationship with him over the centuries. A God who saves and heals his people. Our responsorial psalm for this weekend bears testimony to this, speaking of God's continual care and saving work for his people and his creation. Thus, in verses 2-4 to of Psalm 147, we hear, The Lord rebuilds Jerusalem and gathers the dispersed of Israel, healing the brokenhearted and binding up their wounds. He numbers the stars and gives to all of them their names. It is the God who saves and heals His people that we see displayed most fully in the life of the Incarnate Son in our Gospel reading for today. We are told that Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever, and the disciples told Jesus about her. Next, we are told, Jesus approached, grasped her hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she waited on them. There are three important points to mention here. The first is the dynamics of the healing itself. We are told that Jesus approached Peter's mother-in-law, drew close to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. What we are taught here is that human creatures experience healing by coming into contact with the living God. What's more, the gospel reading for this Sunday makes clear that God desires to draw close to the human family precisely to heal them from all ills. Thus, after Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, we are told that when it was evening, after sunset, they brought to him all who were ill or possessed by demons. He cured many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. Then after spending the night in prayer, the next morning Jesus tells his disciples, Let us go to the nearby villages, that I may preach there also. For this purpose I have come. Abolishing the suffering of the human family and healing them, saving them from every ill, is the mission of the Son of God incarnate. The second element to note is how this healing comes about, which adds a communal element. Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, comes into contact with Peter's mother-in-law precisely by way of those who had already drawn close to him. For it is the disciples who tell Jesus about Peter's mother-in-law and thus intercede for her, if you will. Consequently, in this instance, the disciples have a participatory role in the healing. They cooperate with the action of God so that the healing might take place. The third element to note is the response of Peter's mother-in-law which also teaches us the sixth and final point concerning human suffering that we learned about today. We are told that once healed, she waited on them. 
Through this, we learn that God heals and strengthens us to serve those around us in love in order that we might imitate the life of the incarnate Son of God, who tells us in chapter 20 of the Gospel of Matthew that he came to serve rather than to be served. My friends, this weekend we confront and learn many things about one of the most difficult realities of human life, suffering. And among all the things we have learned, the most important is that God rejects human suffering just as intensely as we do. Our gospel reading for this Sunday makes clear that the coming of the kingdom of God coincides with the healing of the human family. And the Son of God incarnate continues to heal us from every ill we experience to this very day especially through the sacraments. In the sacrament of penance, we are healed of spiritual ills, and in the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, not only are spiritual ills healed, but we pray God's grace to bring full restoration of health to the one who ails, if it be his will. In every case, our God heals in order that those healed might become ministers of his grace, channels of his healing love. Thus, what we witness in the episode of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law today mirrors the dynamics of the sacred liturgy. When we come into contact with the living God by way of receiving him eucharistically, we experience healing from vice and are strengthened by his virtue precisely so that we might imitate his self-sacrificing love in service to our neighbors. Thus, at the end of each Mass, we are told, Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We are healed and strengthened by drawing close to the living God so that we too, like we witness the disciples do for Peter's mother-in-law today, might bring Christ into our world, that it might experience the life-giving love of the God who heals. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.